He was tutored by Aristotle until the age of 16. In fact, he would say that he was indebted to his father for living, but to his teacher, Aristotle, for living well. At the age of 20, he would take over the Greco-Roman Empire, inheriting his father's empire and the economic, military, and political power that went with it. He would lay conquest to places such as Persia and India. And at the age of 33, he would die in Babylon. It's been said that on his deathbed, Alexander the Great had three requests. The first request was that the doctors who tended to him just prior to his death would carry his coffin. His second request was that all of his wealth would be scattered behind his casket during the funeral procession. And then last but not least, he wanted his arms to dangle outside of his coffin with his hands to the heaven for all to see. It perplexed his aides. They said, why do you want to do this? He answered with these words. He said, I want the best doctors to carry my coffin to demonstrate that in the face of death, even the best doctors in the world have no power to heal. I want the road to be covered with my treasure so that everybody sees that wealth acquired on earth stays on earth. I want my hands to swing in the wind to understand, uh, so people understand that we come to this world empty-handed and we leave empty-handed after the most precious gift of all is expended, the gift of time. Have you ever considered how time is a gift? How that if we spend our time well, we can have an abundance physically, spiritually, and emotionally. But have you also ever considered that when it comes to a change in the year, New Year's resolutions, that we tend to think too short? We tend to limit time. I want to lose 20 pounds this year, or I want to get that new haircut this year, or I really want to look good this year, I want to get out of debt this year. Okay, maybe those things are great things, but I think our, our, our focus on time is too narrow. In fact, what we need to be doing is we need to be thinking eternal. We need to think deep. If you get anything at all out of today's teaching, understand this. When it comes to life and New Year's resolutions, you need to begin with the end in mind. Begin with the end in mind. Now, I didn't come up with that. Stephen Covey, in his best-selling book from the 1980s, How to, uh, The Seven Habits of, of Highly Effective People, came up with that. And he wanted us to apply that to our professional lives. But what if we applied that concept to our professional, personal, and spiritual lives? It could be life-changing as we think eternal, as we put Jesus at the center of our, res our resolutions. God's got a lot to say about that. As we come into 2019, hey, by the way, happy Bacon Day. Today is National Bacon Day. So we got that going for us. We're stepping into 2019, and what I want to do this weekend, what I want to do today, is I want to tell a story. And it's a very well-known story in Scripture. In fact, most people know the story, even if they're not Christ followers. It's a story about Jesus turning water into wine. Now, a couple caveats with this story. There's a whole lot of symbolism in this story. We're going to go deep. Here at Cornwall Church, we preach deep sermons. We don't go with fluff. And today will be no exception. We're going to be talking about some symbolism so we can mine some gems out of this incredible story. The second caveat is I am going to be talking a lot about wine. And I'm not glorifying the abuse or use of alcohol, so, so don't write me that email. I just want to let you know up front that we've got to look at the Jewish culture, which was Jesus' culture because Jesus was Jewish. And I want to look at the Jewish culture uh, of 2,000 years ago. And so we can use that to mine some gems out of this story, okay? 
So turn in your Bibles to John chapter 2. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Let me set the scene for what's going on. If you go back with me, uh, about 2,000 plus years ago, Jesus is 30-ish years old. He comes down to the Jordan River. There's John the baptizer. He's baptizing people in the river. Jesus says to John, you need to baptize me. John says, no way. And what does Jesus say? Yahweh. Come on, guys. It never gets old. That's the fifth time now I've used that joke at Cornwall Church. Last bad dad joke of the year. So he says, no way, Yahweh. And so John dunks him in the water. He comes up out of the water. The Holy Spirit descends upon Jesus like a dove. We hear those great words from God himself saying, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. At which time the Holy Spirit, God, leads Jesus into the desert for 40 days of trials. 40 days of difficulty. Towards the end of that, he throws down with Satan. They do this mixed martial arts match. Jesus does Satan in, a, in this arm bar. Satan taps out. Jesus wins. He starts his earthly ministry. Our story picks up today early on in Jesus' ministry. My guess is it's before the Sermon on the Mount, but we don't know that. We do know it's his first public miracle, and they're at a wedding. Okay, John chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. You guys ready? Yeah. All right, here we go. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Okay, let's talk a couple minutes about weddings in, in the, the, the Palestine culture, the Jewish culture, back about 2,000 plus years ago. Weddings were a big deal. They were a huge deal, in fact. And what would happen if, if you were a, a virgin, female virgin, you would be married on a Wednesday night, a non-virgin, a, a widow or something like that, would be married on a Thursday night. I don't know why they chose those nights, but they did. It occurred at nighttime, and what would happen is the groom and the groomsman would go over to the bride's house. They'd have this chair. It had these big sticks sticking out of it. They'd put her in the chair, and they'd carry her all throughout the town. It's nighttime. They'd have torches in the front, torches in the back, and they'd be proclaiming the wedding celebration. And they'd all go over to the groom's house. There'd be a ceremony, and then they'd begin what's called the mistita. The mistita. It's a, it, it, it literally means the drink festival. It would be anywhere from three, but most likely eight to ten days of just partying like it's 99. And so they would do that. Now, a couple things about these weddings. First of all, it, it, it's, it's a cultural experience, and it's a community experience. Here in, in America, our weddings are about the bride and the groom. We can say it's about two families coming together. Most of us pastors say something like that when we officiate a wedding. But at the end of the day, it's really about a bride and a groom coming together. In that culture, it was not that way. In that culture, it was a community event. Because the more weddings you have, the more kids you're going to have. The more kids you're going to have, the more they're going to grow up, and you're going to have economic security, and you're going to have physical security. It's a public feast, and it's the biggest event for a bride and groom in their life. Lots of social pressure. We don't know why Jesus and Mary are at this. There's a whole boatload of speculation on it. We're not going to speculate. We don't have time to go down those rabbit holes, and they're just speculation anyway. They're invited this, to this wedding, and in that culture, when you go to a wedding, or when you're invited to a wedding, you go no matter what. Okay, so here we go. Look what happens. They're at this wedding, and disaster strikes. Look at verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Okay, so why is this a disaster? A couple things. First of all, wine is the single most important element of these ancient feasts. 
period. It is the single most important element. So if you run out of wine, it is a major social faux pas. Also, in, in the Jewish culture of that time, it was an honor and shame culture. If you lose face, there is no grace. If you would run out of wine, it would be unthinkable, and it would be a jar to your reputation. There's guilt, and there's shame, but there's also a legal issue, because in the culture of that time, you could be fined for not providing for your guests. So, it's a disaster. And Mary comes to Jesus, says, you're out of wine. Why is she doing this? Let's, let's, let's think about this. I, I, I came up with three different reasons. Let's try reason number one. Maybe Mary's an introvert, and she's peopled out. You know, she's, she's been at this wedding for a few days, and she's like, they're out of wine. The party's over. Let's get out of here. It's our chance. It could be. Um, my last assignment in the military, Linda and I, we were stationed in Seoul, South Korea. I was a senior military intelligence officer at the embassy. And on the embassy circuit, you have to go to a lot of diplomatic events. This time of year, it's horrible. I remember one day we had five events we had to go to. And by the time the third event hit, and we were on our third different outfit, because each event has a different outfit you have to wear. You know, you got the Meryl Steubing Love Boat outfit. You, you know what I'm talking about? Love, exciting, and new. Shuffleboard on the promenade deck. Come on, people. Go with me. He's the, the tuxedo with all the medals. And then the next one is a, a suit and tie. Then the next one, you got to change into a different military uniform. By number five, she's peopled out. Now, I'm an extrovert. Imagine that. And Linda's an introvert. And we've developed these signs, and her sign that the party was over, it would start with this. She'd look at me from across the room and doing this. I'm like, okay, I, I'm slowing the uptake. 20 minutes or so later, she'd take off her glasses and do something like this. If I'm still slow on the uptake 20 minutes later, she does the kick and chicken. That means, that means it's time to go. So maybe Mary's doing the kick and chicken here, saying, Jesus, the party's over, let's roll. What if, though? What if Mary was saying to Jesus, I need a miracle. I need you to show up today and give me a miracle because you've heard these people. For the past 30 years, they've been snickering behind my back. Here she comes, impregnated by the Holy Spirit. Right, she should have been stoned. And they say the same thing about you. They talk behind your back. Do a miracle. Clear my name. We're going to talk more about that in a couple minutes. Could be. Or maybe she's just saying, Jesus, these people mean a lot to me. They're out of wine. Will you do something to help out? We don't know, but we do know this. It's very important because it's the only time in Scripture in which Mary makes a request to Jesus. And because of that, it's a big deal. She comes to Jesus when the wine runs out. Isn't it funny how Jesus gets real when the wine runs out? It's so true. Jesus gets real when the wine runs out. Many of you have experienced that. Some of you just within the past couple of weeks, you were laid off and you got bills from the past as you're looking at the bills to the future and you're in the middle of the mess as the wine has run out. Some of you here have been on your knees praying for that wayward son or daughter and once again he or she gets involved in something they shouldn't and the wine has run out. Some of you have been focusing your whole life on living this active lifestyle, this healthy lifestyle. You've been alcohol-free, caffeine-free, gluten-free, sugar-free, free-to-be, you and me. You've done everything right. You go to the gym 30 minutes a day. You're 8% body fat. Your, your body is like chiseled. That's a V thing, you know, big shoulders, little waist. Yet you still get that phone call 
saying there's an abnormality in your test. And the wine ran out. Jesus gets real when the wine runs out. He promises to never leave us nor forsake us. Even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, we'll fear no evil, for he's with us. His rod and his staff, they comfort us, especially when the wine runs out. So there's a disaster going on here. The wine has run out, and guess where Jesus is? He's right there. Folks, if if your proverbial wine has run out, maybe, just maybe, right now God is giving you a front row seat to watch him do a miracle. Look what happens next. Mary says, they have no more wine. Look at Jesus' bizarre response, verse 4. Look at this. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. What? I mean, it makes no sense. What's he talking about? Okay, let's, we can answer it in two ways. He could say this in, in a couple different ways. Way one is the misogynistic, uh, the, the, the misog- male chauvinist pig way. Woman, why are you asking me this? Why are you involving me in this? Go make me a sandwich. I don't think that's what Jesus is saying. In fact, if you look at the original language, what he's really saying, it's a direct tone. It is. But I love the New Living Translation. It's dear woman. It's the same way he'd address the woman at the well. Dear woman. It's the same way he would address Mary when he's on the cross and he's got John, the guy who wrote this gospel, and Mary's standing right there and he says to John, this is now your mother. And he says to Mary, dear woman, this is your son. He's not saying, woman, this is your son. Now get me off the cross and make me a sandwich. That's not what he's saying. It's a direct yet soft tone. And then he says this phrase, this phrase, my hour has not yet come. We got we to unpack that because this whole passage depends on this one phrase. This whole passage does. You see, we got to remember that everything Jesus did had a purpose. Everything he did had a purpose. It's his first miracle. And don't you think he would make sure everything is set up specifically if he's going to do his first miracle and something is weighing heavily upon his heart. And I would argue that something is his hour because his hour is all about the cross. When he talks about his time, it's all about the cross. Something's weighing on his chest, and he's thinking about the cross at this incredible wedding. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to press pause on this story. Freak not. He's going to turn water into wine. It's all going to be good. There's going to be joy and laughter. But what we need to do is we need to unpack this part to truly mine the gems of what this is and apply them to our lives, okay? So let's look at this. John chapter 7, verses 6 through 8. It's just a short time after this. Jesus has been doing some miracles, and his brothers don't believe in him. Jesus was Jewish. He had brothers and sisters, and his brothers don't believe in him. So they say, hey, Twinkie the magician, the hostess pie technician, why don't you go up to Jerusalem and do some of your magic tricks? Look at Jesus' answer. Therefore, Jesus told them, the right time for me has not yet come. For you, any time is right. The world can't hate you, but it hates me because I testify that what it does is evil. You go to the feast. I'm not yet going up to the feast because for me, the right time has not come. You see, time and the cross go hand in hand in Jesus' mind. Fast forward to just days before he goes to the cross. Now his time is coming. Look what he says here, John 12, 23 to 24. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a seed, but if it dies, it produces many seeds. The hour is equated with the cross. 
Last but not least, John 17, verse 1. He's doing the high priestly prayer. Just right before he's getting arrested, look at his words here. Father, the time has come. Glorify your son that your son may glorify you. The point is the cross was always in his sight. He's at this wedding, and he's beginning with the end in mind. He began his ministry with the end in mind, and and it was the cross. That's what he was thinking of at this wedding. He was beginning with the end in mind. So you could look back at verse 4, and you can rephrase it something like this. Mom, for my people to fall into into my arms, I'm going to have to die. For my people to drink joy at a wedding feast, I'm going to have to drink a cup of suffering, wrath, punishment, and death. For my people to have joy, I'll have to lose mine when my hour comes on a place called Golgotha. But right now, my hour has not yet come. With that in mind, his response makes sense. Timothy Keller, in his commentary about this passage, said that if Jesus was at a time of joy, a great time of joy, a wedding, and he was thinking about his death on the cross, he was always thinking about his death on the cross. He'd have to give up his joy so we could have ours. He'd have to give up his life so we too could have eternal life. So what I want to do, I said we're going to unpack some things here. I want to look at some symbolism. Let's look at the symbolism of the bride and groom. Throughout the Bible, in the Old Testament, we see God is the groom and Israel, his people, is the bride. Jesus is progressively revealed throughout, throughout Scripture. And in the New Testament, what we see is Jesus, the groom, and we, the church, as the bride. We see Jesus as the groom, we the church as his bride. So through scripture, we see this. If you go back to the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, it's halfway through the Bible, open it up, go to the right a couple, a couple books. And it's steamy. I'm not talking steamy. Jewish boys weren't allowed to read this till they were 13 years old. It should really be called like Fifty Shades of Grace. And it's about a, a, a groom and a bride and their love for one another, and they eventually have a physical union. Fast forward then to the book of Isaiah. When Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus, writes about how God's going to have this wedding banquet with his people, fast forward again to the end of the Bible, the book of Revelation, where Jesus is all excited because there's going to be this wedding supper of the Lamb, where Jesus will return and he, the groom, will marry us, his bride. Maybe, just maybe, when Jesus is at this wedding, He's thinking about joy, but it's eternal joy, and he's got to go through something horrific to get to that point of time. Okay, so let's go back to Mary. Let's go back to the story. I said, you know, maybe she's saying, hey, I'm an introvert. Let's get out of here. What if Mary's saying, Jesus, I need you to do a miracle. I need you to clear my name. And to that, I think Jesus would say, I'll clear your name, Mom, but it's not going to be here. It's not going to be three days into a wedding. It's going to be three days after I'm hanging on a cross where I've tasted wine on earth for the last time, where I've had a Roman soldier get a hyssop branch, put a sponge on the end of it, dip it into vinegar wine, and put it to my lips, and then I say, it is finished. Into your hands I commit my spirit. I'll do a miracle for you, Mom, but it's going to be three days after that when I rise from the dead. But right now, my time has not come. My hour has not come. Look at Mary's response, verse 5. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Just a quick side note. Wouldn't our world be a better place if we just did what Jesus told us? 
I mean, he gives us two commands. Two commands. Love God greatly, love each other dearly. Love God with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love each other as we want to be loved. Our world would be our families, our communities, our church. Everywhere around us would be so much better if in 2019 our resolution would be to just do what Jesus says. Verses 6 and 7. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. That's important. Each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Okay, let's talk about, we've talked about the symbolism of the bride and groom. Let's talk about the symbolism of the jars because we can't miss this. Everything Jesus did had a purpose. These stone jars are jars for purification. You got to go back to, the, to when God gives Moses the law. Remember that, you know, the Ten Commandments? He gives Moses, the, the Mosaic Law broke out in three, three ways. The first thing is the moral law. You got the Ten Commandments. Then you got the civil law. What happens when we start doing this with each other? What happens is so-and-so kills a friend or whatever? So God lays all that out in the law. And then there's a ceremonial law, and it's all about cleansing and purification. And over time, the next several hundred years, the, the Pharisees, the Jewish leaders would put more man-made laws on this to where you couldn't run into anything without becoming unclean. So there were these stone jars all over the place, and you'd clean yourself. You see, Jesus fulfills that Old Testament sacrificial system. We would have to be cleansed, but we need to be cleansed from the outside. Remember, after this, Jesus is going to go to the Pharisees, the, the leaders of the Jewish religion, and he'd say, woe to you, scribes, woe to you, Pharisees, woe to you, teachers of the law. You take a cup and you scrub it on the outside, but inside, it's filthy, dirty, just like you, full of greed and self-indulgence. He'd go to them and say, woe to you, scribes, woe to you, Pharisees, woe to you, teachers of the law. You're like whitewashed tombs. You look good on the outside, but inside, you're nothing but dead bones and impurity. You see, what makes you clean on the outside won't make you clean on the inside. So Jesus is using these stone pots. Everything he did had a reason. He's fulfilling the Old Testament law. Jesus said, I didn't come to abolish the law, but what? To fulfill the law. He'd be a substitute for the old way represented by stone pots, and he does it at a wedding where there's shame. You see, because we're all impure, all of us have impurities within us. We all have sin in us, and we need a Savior. We need a Savior who can clean us from the inside out, not just cleanse us on the outside. See, for shame to be turned to joy, there'd have to be a sacrifice that would lead to purification. A sacrifice that would lead to purification. So Jesus shows us once again that everything he did had a purpose. His hour had not yet come. So he's doing things to set up what that's going to look like and what he's going to do. Okay, let's look at verses 8 and 9. Jesus commands the servants to fill these jars with water, and the servants obey. Look what happens. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Okay, so in Jesus' time, there was a saying, a rabbinical saying, that without wine, there is no joy. So we've talked about the symbolism of the bride and groom, why it's important in the story. The symbolism of the stone jar is why it's important. Let's talk about the symbolism of the wine. Okay, here's the thing about wine in, in the, the Jewish culture of that time. Water was impure. What they'd do is they'd take two parts water, one part wine at a given meal. For women and children who weren't allowed to drink wine, they would, they would uh, really water down the wine, but they had to have that wine in there to keep the water pure. 
At a mistita, though, it wasn't watered down. Most of the wine at that time is, is a dark red wine. In fact, some scholars say there, there was no white wines at that time. So when Jesus is talking about wine, he's talking about his blood. Wine represents his blood, just as, 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 as his death would take away our sin when we believe in him. We need his blood to cover us. Fast forward to just hours before he's arrested. He's with his disciples in the upper room. And he pours that wine into a chalice. And it's a dark red wine that looks like his blood. And he says, this is my blood poured for you. And it's the blood of a new promise, a new and living way. The old has done. The stone jars, we don't need them anymore. Because now we've got this. This is when you gather together and you drink this wine, you do it in remembrance of me. You see, he had to pour out his blood so we could have this eternal life. We needed that covering. And he had to pour out his joy so we could have eternal joy. And so with all of that, you know, you look at the, the wedding going on. Mary's thinking short term. That you got a bride and groom in trouble. They, they got guilt and shame. He's thinking long term. He's like, no, everybody has guilt and shame. And the only way to cover that is with my blood. They're thinking about wine. He's thinking about blood. And as I look at this, he's beginning with the end in mind. His first miracle, his first public miracle is at a wedding. His last public miracle is going to be at a funeral. The funeral for his dear friend Lazarus, who's dead. And Jesus is going to go, and he's going to raise him from the dead, showing, him, showing us that he has victory over death. And he has victory over anything in our lives that can kill us because death has no sting for us who believe in Jesus. I think it's interesting as we look at this. Think about Moses. You know, we talk about the Mosaic Law. We talk about Moses. Moses did miracles too. In fact, God, through Moses, did a whole bunch of things. God tells Moses, you're going to release my people from Egypt, and I, so you're going to have to go talk to Pharaoh. So what's the first miracle that Moses does? He turns water into blood, blood that represents judgment, wrath, and justice. And that has to happen. We have to have justice. Jesus comes on the scene. He turns water into wine that represents grace and love and joy, but there has to be blood spilled for us to have justice. And it's through Jesus that we get that. Jesus turns water into wine. He takes on the cup of pain and punishment so we could dr drink this cup of blessing and love. He began with the end in mind. It was all about his hour. He's always looking at the cross. Let's keep going, verses 10 and 11. The servants bring the MC of the event, the wine, and look at their response. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you, you have saved the best till now. Isn't God's timing amazing? You know, at the beginning, I, 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 was, I was talking about how how you may have a front row seat. If you need a miracle right now, you may have a front row seat to watch God do a miracle. Folks, understand me, please. God's timing is amazing. And he's gonna give you that miracle in his time and not yours and mine. We pray in our time, he blesses and answers in his. That miracle may occur on this side of eternity if it does, praise God. Beauty turned into ashes. Oftentimes, though, it's on the other side of eternity, no matter what, 
His timing is perfect. He's never too late. Verse 11 says, What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. I think it's interesting how Jesus does this miracle, and guess who gets the credit for it? Not Jesus, but the groom. They're in the middle of nowhere, Cana of Galilee. It's a speck on the map. Two insignificant people, the bride and the groom. We don't know who they are, but Jesus does. Yeah, he was always thinking about the end, end game. He began with the end in mind, but no one is too insignificant for him. And I always say, if you get anything out of today's teaching, get this. And today it's begin with the end in mind. Well, a second part to that, understand that with Jesus in your life, God delights in you. Before Jesus, before we have Jesus in our life, our sin makes us an enemy of God. We've got that guilt and shame. We've got to have Jesus. And with Jesus in us, God looks at us and he doesn't see imperfections. He doesn't see our latest screw up, our latest idea of stupid. He looks at us and he sees his son because we're covered with his blood represented by that wine. He looks at you and me and says, it's not about your performance My love is not predicated on your performance. I love you no matter what. You're covered. I do a lot of weddings here at Cornwall. And uh, some of you you in the the audience, I I can see you today because uh, you've been one of the uh, groomsmen in, in the weddings I've done. And I always say to the groom, I always say these words. As the bride's walking in, I say, you've got the best seat in the house, partner the best seat. You need to cherish this moment. And every time they're beaming, if they're not beaming, we got an issue. And, and think about this. When, when God looks at you, when you have Jesus in your heart, he sees, he's like that groom, and he sees you, the bride, just walking down, and he's beaming, saying, that's her. That's my bride. As I close today, some of you here might be saying, you know, Kip, I got it. I started with the end in mind. I did. I started with the end. I began my career with the end in mind. God called me to this career, and my wheels are doing nothing but this. I'm spinning. We started our marriage with the end in mind, and years into it now, we got the saggy baggies going, kids are gone, and we're spinning our wheels where I'm praying every day, I'm on my knees praying, and where is God because I don't sense his presence. You know, maybe 2019 might be the year that you do something in your career if you've been called to it, and you stay in that career. Maybe you go to a different organization. Maybe 2019 is the year in which you do something about your marriage. You see a counselor. Maybe if you're living in that long, long, long dry season, maybe it's time to come talk to a pastor and talk through that. But here's the thing, don't quit. Don't quit because your greatness is on the other side of never never quit. Your greatness is on the other side of never quit. Paul tells us to press on, that we put what's behind us and we, we press forward. If God has called you to it, he will complete that good work he has placed in you. Do not quit. Think what would have happened had Jesus quit. He's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he can call down a legion of angels, and boom, he's out of there, and we're in a world of hurt. 
But his greatness was on the other side of never quit. His greatness was on the other side of his hour. His greatness was on the other side of the cross where he defeated death. He dies, he's buried, he's resurrected. And because of that, he is God. He began with the end in mind. And as you step into 2019, here's your challenge, and it's a challenge for a lifetime. Your challenge is with your resolutions, think eternal. With your resolutions, think eternal. Have Jesus at the center of your resolutions. Let me unpack that for a couple of minutes, and then I'll get you out of here. Why not make 2019 the year in which you figure out your calling, where you've received Jesus as your Savior and Lord, but you have the guts to pray a prayer, something like this, saying, Lord, you've given me gifts, you've given me talents, whatever it is, I want to use them for your glory. And then you surround yourself with godly men and women to help you discern that over the next next amount of time, however long that is. And here's the deal, though. you got to have the courage not only to say that prayer, but when God shows up to say yes to the dress because he will show up. And if he shows up, it could be doing something radical or just building into what you're doing right here, right now. That'd be pretty powerful. What about this year, if it's this year for you to desire and know Christ even more? This is the year of discipleship for you, that you want to delve into discipleship. You want to join a small group or a quad. You want to start delving into things such as study, worship, prayer, surrender. And you throw yourself into things spiritual. That could be powerful for you. How about this one? Making this the year of healthy relationships. You know, I said that your greatness is on the other side of never quit. Sometimes you got to quit a relationship. If you've got a toxic person in your life, sometimes you've got to put that boundary up, and that boundary has to be pretty tight, and it's difficult to do. Maybe you're that toxic person. If you've got three or four people saying you're toxic, you might want to listen to them, and maybe 2019 is a year for you to come to a counselor and talk about that road to the wound. It's difficult, but it pays big dividends. Maybe this year is the year you put away your smartphone. Oh, I'm on day 35 of my flip phone. And I I got rid of my smartphone because it was in in the way of my relationship with my wife and God. I'm always on my smartphone. So I got my flip phone. And I'm not saying that, ooh, look at Kip, he's so spiritual. I'm just saying I got to practice what I preach. Maybe this is the year in which you say goodbye to some social media. I believe social media is tearing our country apart tearing our families apart. It has great things. We use it here at Cornwall Church. I use it for ministry in a bunch of ways. But I think at the end of the day, we're worse off because of it. When we see families at parks and the kids are saying, Mommy, Daddy, look at me, and we're doing this number. We're no longer talking to people. We're being keyboard killers. Maybe this is the year for that. Maybe this is the year for you to invest in the life of someone else. You know, we've got a great program here at Cornwall called Teach One to Lead One. At Teach One to Lead One, what we do is is we go into public schools, elementary schools, and we have a mentoring program. Maybe that's what you need to do. No matter what, build into someone else this year. Think eternal, think deep. Begin with the end in mind. Skagit, I'm going to turn you over to Pastor Brian. Thank you so much for being part of our church and what you're doing in Skagit. Boca Raton, thank you for what you're doing down in Florida. For those of you joining us online, especially those of you in Afghanistan and Iraq uh, serving right now, especially Lieutenant Dalton Pick, love you, buddy. So glad you're doing what you're doing here in Bellingham. Let's go ahead and stand and close in prayer.
Well, God, we love you. We love you so much and we thank you. We thank you that you went to the cross for us so we could have this eternal life, that we could have this eternal joy. And as we walk out of here this week, give us the courage to step into 2019, loving you greatly, loving others dearly. As we make resolutions, as we resolve to do things, Jesus, may you be at the center of our resolutions. In Christ's name, amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May he shine his face upon you. May he shower you with grace and give you great peace, not only this week, but this year. Happy New Year. Prayer team up front if you need it. Thanks a lot.